It's amazing how quickly the grace that we've received from Jesus, the righteousness that we're told to live into, we so quickly turn to the law for our own righteousness. Let me define legalist for us before we move on. Because I think as we continue through this passage, we'll see that Jesus is calling the disciples, he's calling the twelve, he's calling us to be free. Legalism is a way for us to feel some sense of importance by living by a set of codes or rules or laws. And so we establish these rules or these laws or these codes in our minds and our hearts, and then what we do is we heap that expectation upon others unfairly, unrightly, and unjustly. We look at others and we think, you must live by the laws and the codes that I have set up. You ever go driving down the road and somebody in front of you is going 25? And you shake your fist and you say, don't you know that you can go 30 here? Or maybe there's a person which maybe this has happened to me once or twice on Mason Street, who zooms right past you. In the city of all places, I'm going 25. They zoom right past you. And then you shake your fist at them and then you say, don't you know it's called the speed limit, not the speed minimum? You see, I'm a recovering legalist. And chances are, so are you where we establish and set these rules and these laws and codes in our heart and we heap other people and we expect other people to live by them. You know, in our passage though this morning, what we notice and what we're recognizing is that a relationship with God frees you from the works of legalism. That's so sweet. Is that the re a relationship with God frees you from the works of legalism. And we're going to see this big idea unfold for us in three parts. First, we're going to look at the worship obligations of the day. Then we're going to see the freedom that's offered. And then what we'll look at lastly or thirdly is that we are free and humble. So let's go ahead and take uh, our, our, first, our first look. Let's go to, to the first part. Worship obligations. Verse 24, it reads this. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, Jesus and the crew, they're back at their hangout. They're in Capernaum. They're at somebody's house. Could be Peter's. Could be, I mean, I, I don't know. Could be a house that they had bought with some of their money. But they're at the hangout spot. And these tax collectors knew that they were back in the area in Capernaum, and so they go up to Peter. And we don't know why they went up to Peter, but for whatever reason they went up to Peter. Maybe it's because they saw Peter as the de facto leader. 
Other people uh, mentioned that one of the reasons why they probably went up to Peter is because they respected Jesus and saw Jesus as a teacher. And it wasn't common for the tax collector to go up to the teacher, but up to the student and ask for the tax. Maybe it's a little bit of both, that they saw Peter as the de facto leader and they didn't want to bother Jesus. But for whatever reason, Peter is the one that they go up to and they ask, is your teacher, Jesus, going to pay the two drachma tax? Now, before we move on, we need to understand exactly what this tax is. Because we could be tempted, which a lot of people have taken this passage this way, we could be tempted to look at this passage and say, well, this is a Roman tax. And we could then unfairly make the application of saying, well, what Jesus is calling us to is, well, Christians don't have to pay taxes. And because Christians don't have to pay taxes, that means you're telling me I don't have to file taxes. And, and because of that, I'm free from it, Max. That I am not saying. Put it on record. Okay. Because that's not the point here. And if we, if we miss the point, then we will wrongly apply what Jesus is communicating, what Matthew is trying to show us. Matthew is the only gospel writer to have this in here. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us that the tax collector would pick up on some type of tax thing. But if we look at it as simply just paying a tax to Rome, then we will misapply and misunderstand what's going on here. Because what this is, is this is the temple tax. These are two Jews who are collecting the temple tax. Not a Roman tax for the Romans, but a temple tax. In Exodus 30, we see what this tax is. As God is speaking to Moses, he tells Moses, he's commanding Moses, tax all of the males. So, women, you're out of this tax. Tax all of the males, 20 and upward. Okay? 20 and upward. For what? For the establishment of the tabernacle. And for an atonement offering. So this is something that took place thousands of years ago for the tabernacle, which is no longer needed because there's a temple. And it's still happening. Thousands some years later, and this tax is still being upheld for something that no longer exists. This was turned into a worship obligation for the people. For the men of the first century, for these Jewish men, it had become an obligation that yearly the people would, or the, the men 20 and upward, would give this temple tax. Now, there were some religious leaders and Pharisees who were somehow exempt from giving this temple tax, but everyone else had to give it. It became this obligation or expectation that if you were a male and you were 20 years old or older, you would pay this yearly. And so these tax collectors want to know, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to pay this? 
Has he paid this somewhere else? He, we know that he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He's kind of here, he's there, he's, he's everywhere. Has he paid it somewhere else? Is he going to pay it here? But there still is this obligation that hangs over the head of the modern, or not modern, but the first century Jewish person. If you paid it, then things were fine. If you didn't, then there was this sense of skepticism. Why aren't you paying this? Why aren't you acting this way? Why aren't you doing this thing that everybody else does that's been done for thousands of years? Don't you like God? Don't you love the temple? Don't you care about it? If you really did this, then you would really show your devotion to God. I wonder if you've ever felt that walking into a church before. Have you ever felt that, those untold expectations and rules that follow you when you go into a new workplace? Or a new school? You know what I'm talking about? that language that people use, those words, those phrases, those sayings, or, you know, that's just that person, you'll get used to it. Or, oh, we don't do that because we've just never done that. Or we've always done it this way, so why are you doing it that way? You know, those untold expectations and rules that keep you out from the community of people until you start to follow suit. Those rules that you have set up. And in your heart, you have told yourself that unless others follow suit, then they cannot be in this community. We wouldn't phrase it this way, but really, we're demanding others to live according to our rules and expectations. We all do this to one degree or another. Why? Because we're all recovering legalists. That's the problem. Our hearts are naturally bent to follow some sort of rule, some sort of law, some sort of code, and then expect others to follow suit as well. We have obligations that we want other people to live by, and if they don't live by them, then they are not allowed into the inner circle. I wonder how many people who have graced us with their presence here at Community Church and have felt that weight have felt on the outside because there were unmet expectations and rules that we demanded on them, not realizing it, not intentionally, but because our hearts were so bent on these rules and laws that we've set up. Now, it's so easy to just look at the church and say, well, the church is the only place that's legalistic, right? At least that's what we hear most of the time. But as I said before, the way that I'm defining legalism is 
anyone that sets up any rules or expectations or codes and demands others to live by. Look, look, the legalist is a very cold person. The, the legalist only loves their neighbor if their neighbor acts like them. And this is what's going on in our society today, isn't it? So it's not just the Christian, it's not just the, the people in church who are tempted to legalism, to follow a set of rules and laws and to be cold towards their neighbor. No, society does this too. And right now, I fear that society is in just a, a very legalistic tornado. It's a vortex. And, and the sad thing is, is that secular society does want to care about people. There is this sense of justice for those who are being oppressed. There is this sense of right and wrong. And yet what's happening is there's this legalist, legalistic heart that's going on that causes those who care about those things to not really love their neighbor at all. Unless you agree with X, Y, or Z. We, we see it, don't we? And that's because man's heart is constantly prone and bent towards legalism. How can I prove this? Because what you should be saying right now is, well, Max, you're saying this, but I want you to prove it from the Bible. Well, we can prove it from the Bible with the first two people that were ever created. Can't we? Adam and Eve, they sin against God. They lose their wonder. They lose their childlike spirit. And what's the first thing they do? They coward, they hide, they sow fig leaves together so that way they're presentable to God. They create this work so that way they're able to approach God. We, we could even go after the flood and see as the, the people all band together to build a tower. What do they do? They build this tower to show God their impressiveness. They, they look up to the heavens and they say, look, we have it together, God. There's no need to send another flood. We've, we've worked our, our butts off and, and now we are doing okay. You see, you, you don't need to worry about us. We have everything under control. Expectations. Rules to follow. We set them in our hearts and we gravitate that to them. We gravitate towards legalism. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need grace is because without grace, without God's mercy, we will continue to run back to legalism. We'll continue to run back to our own righteousness, just as dogs run back to their vomit. So I think I've, I've, I've talked enough about these worship obligations that we set up, that we all set up, that we're all prone to, that we all run to. So let's, let's look at the freedom that, that's then offered to us. In verses 25 through 26, Peter said, yes, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. So Peter speaks on behalf of Jesus, rightly, wrongly. We don't really know. We, we do know that Jesus says Simon instead of Peter. Right, Haddon has caught on pretty well that, you know, when one of the boys is in trouble, we're going to say first name and middle name. So it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't say Peter, but he says Simon. 
That's as far as I'm going to go with that one. I just think that's interesting that he refers to him as Simon instead of Peter. So Jesus immediately asks Simon here a question about taxes. Peter, Simon, do the kings take taxes and toll from their own family or from others? Peter comes up with the obvious answer, doesn't he? Well, from others, right? And Peter answers correctly, yes, Jesus says, from others. Well, why? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If a king taxes their own child, then they're really just taxing themselves. There's no harm, there's no, there's no loss there, right? Let me, let me try to illustrate it like, like this. Imagine a candy store opened up on Wisconsin. Great candy store. Beautiful candy store. You walk in and there's a chocolate river flowing through. There's everlasting gobstoppers. You can eat anything that you want to. The lights are edible. All of it. Everything. And the owners of this store, they have children. And the children come in. Now would you expect the parents of that store to make their children pay for the candy to eat? No, it's their children. The children, they do have certain privileges because they are the children of the owners. And so Jesus here, he's making an important fundamental statement is that he is the son. He is the son of God. And so if he were to pay the tax to the temple, then really it's no love lost because he is the son. And the son would be that giving the money over to the father. This is important for us. We can't miss this right here. We can't miss what Jesus is communicating because Jesus isn't communicating that the sons are free from paying taxes. That's not exactly what he's saying here. What he's saying is something far more greater, far more important for us to know, for the disciples to realize. It's that they're free from these worship obligations. Why? Because Jesus, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He he came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law completely, perfectly, without spot or blemish. He obeyed it all. Every aspect, every jot and tittle, Jesus obeys perfectly. Even this one. See, this is the gospel. We do have a debt over our head. We do have a tax to pay. And that tax continues to rack up every time we take a breath. Every time we take a cup of water and we drink. Every time we wake up in the morning, that tax over our head becomes more and more. Because the more we experience the mercy of God, the more we have no excuse to submit to Him. And so that tax continues to increase and grow and loom over our heads. The debt becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And what we're tempted to do is then say, okay, Father, 
let me work to pay you back from this tax, from this debt. You know, last week while we were sick, Haddon wanted to watch the Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the scenes in the Pilgrim's Progress that's always caught my attention, whether it's the book or the movie, is, is, is it's one of the, the most just dominating scenes, I think, is when Christian, he goes to Mount Legality. He has this burden of sin upon his back. He has this tax. He has this debt. And he wants to get rid of it. And he knows that, that he can't. He can't just unstrap it from himself. And he's looking for everywhere. And he's told, if you only go to Mount Legality, that will help you get it off. He can get it off your back. And so Christian comes to Mount Legality and he's confronted with this huge mountain with a stone man on top. And around the mountain are all of these graves with different works that you have to do in order to climb the mountain. And the man tells him on top of the mountain, if you get up to me, then I can take this burden off your back. But you have to work to get up here. And in order for you to get up here, you have to keep every single law that has ever been written on this mountain. And what happens? Christian, he climbs up the mountain and he continues to stumble because he can't keep up with the demands of keeping the law. He can't do it. All of the laws, he can't do it. And so he tries and he falls and he gets back up and he tries again and he falls until he's nearly crushed. That's what we do. That's, that's our legalistic heart, is, is we try to climb the mount. We try to climb up Mount Sinai. We try to climb up Mount Legality. And, and what we do is we continue to fall, we continue to stumble, because we realize that these laws, they crush us. The laws crush us, and, and yet we still go back to it. Why? Because it makes us feel kind of good. It makes us feel like we're better than the next person, and yet we cannot keep up with it. The tax only continues to increase. And yet the gospel tells us that Jesus perfectly climbs that mountain. He ascends the hill. Not only does he ascend the hill, but he sacrificed on top of it. His side is pierced. He dies as our sacrifice. He keeps the law perfectly. So that way when we trust in Him, no longer are we asked to pay the tax, but instead, we're told that we're free. Right here, Jesus says, the sons are free. When you trust in Jesus, this is what's declared for you. On the mountaintop, no longer is it do this, do that, keep up with this, do this. No, what's declared for you when you trust in Jesus is you're free. The weight is off. The pressure is off. No longer are you meant to keep the tax because it's been paid for you by Jesus. He's paid it for you. And so when we submit to him, when we trust in him, our debt is cleared. The tax is paid for. We're free. Is this freedom, do you know this freedom? Is this the freedom that you've experienced? Or are you still believing that somehow you can climb up the mountain yourself, keeping every rule, 
Please take it from one recovering legalist to the next. You cannot climb that mountain without it crushing you. It will crush you. You may, for a little while, be able to ascend that mountain and look down on everyone and say, look at how well I'm keeping the law. But believe me, at some point, there will be something that you will not be able to keep and it will crush you. Turn to Jesus. He'll take the burden. He says, I'm gentle and lowly. He's come to save you, to free you, to declare the sons, the daughters are free. All right. Let's look at our last point here. Free and humble, verse 27. Jesus says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to, to them for me and for yourself. So we see that the sons are free, but yet Jesus still doesn't want to give offense. Right? So they're free from this worship obligation, and yet Jesus still humbly says, this might cause these brothers to stumble. It would be better for us to pay this tax than to declare our freedom. You know, we see Jesus teaching Peter two very important things here in this last verse. The first thing that we see Jesus teaching Peter is the Christ's humility. That he's submitting himself to the laws, to the worship obligations. And he does it out of his humility for his other brothers. So he's teaching Peter humility. But he's also going to teach Peter that he is the Son of God. Isn't it interesting how in the passage before this, verses 22 through 23, we see Jesus telling of his death, that he's going to die. And then yet, in the very next passage, we see Jesus once again showing his divinity. He doesn't need to use the money that's in the money bag. Why not? Because this is a fishing experience that every fisherman had, right? Right, Rick? I mean, it would be pretty awesome to catch a fish just to open its mouth and see that there's a, a dollar in there. Like, come on, that would, be, that, would be, that would be a pretty cool fishing story. Peter gets that story. He gets to go around saying, you know, one time Jesus told me to throw a hook over here and that there'd be money in this fish. And sure enough, there it is. Tell me that's not a great fishing story. And he's teaching Peter dependence upon him and that he has the power to put a gold coin. Maybe it's not gold, I don't know but to put a coin in a fish to pay off this tax. We see a humble Savior who does not want to give offense to others. He doesn't want to cause others to stumble, and yet he's still proving his divine deity, that he will take care of his disciples. And how does Jesus prove this humility and his, this divinity? 
by Peter fulfilling this worship obligation. So he's telling the disciples the sons are free and yet he's still submitting to this worship obligation. Let me use our illustration that we used a little bit earlier. The children had special privileges, right? They, got, they get to have candy. They don't have to pay for candy like the other kids that come to the store. They can eat one of the tiles because one of the tiles on the floor is edible. It might be pretty gross at that point, but in, in, uh, all I know is that in Willy Wonka, everything was edible. In the chocolate factory. But the kids still need to submit to the parents, right? I mean, parents, we long for our kids to submit to us, right? Some days are better than other days. But we still see submission going on. So what is Jesus teaching us here? Jesus is teaching us that just because you are free from the law, it doesn't mean that you take advantage of the law and cause others to stumble. Let me say that again. Because here in America, in the land of the free, oftentimes we go about and we think, well, I have my freedoms, I have my rights. I'm just telling the truth. Who cares about counting the interests of others more highly as long as it's my truth? Jesus teaches us that just because you are free from the law, it doesn't mean that you take advantage of the law to cause others to stumble, to cause offense to others. Why? Because the one who is truly free from legalism will truly love their brother or sister. I mean, the one who is truly free from legalism can actually love the law, delight in the law, just as David delighted in the law, and it not be a shackle to them. It not be a burden to them. Those free from legalism say in their heart, not, oh, I, I have to follow this, but they say in their heart, my heart delights in the law of God. My heart delights in submitting to others or, or to humbling myself for the sake of others because I love them. When our hearts are free from legalism, we actually truly start loving our neighbors as ourselves. When our hearts are free from legalism, then we truly enter into a relationship with God where unexpected and pleasurable things will happen. We can look at our brother, we can look at our sister, and we can truly humble ourselves for their benefit, not ours. As I was reflecting on this passage, right, because I think one thing, another thing that you guys should be saying again is, is back this up, Max. 
you're saying that when you're free from legalism, you can actually truly love your brother or sister. Where is this in Scripture? I think we see it in Paul's life. The Apostle Paul. The, bigot, the legalist of legalists is what he called himself. The Pharisee of Pharisees. He kept every single law. He kept it. He was zealous to keep it. He persecuted people for not keeping it. And yet when he was truly free, when he found freedom, when he found a relationship with God, and he was free from the works of legalism, he was able to say to his readers, look, if a brother or sister cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols, just refrain from it. Don't worry about it. The same man who wanted to keep every jot and tittle and forced everybody to do the same was able to write in Philippians 2, count the interests of others more highly than your own interests. So there's my proof. When, when we are free from legalism, then we're able to start truly loving our brothers and sisters. When we're free from legalism, then we truly start experiencing God. Why? Because we see his love for what it is. Holy, perfect, and without blemish. We can't keep the law so what gives us the right to then heap our own law on others? When we're free from legalism, we truly start experiencing God's grace. I'm a recovering legalist. Do you know that you are too? And that day by day, we need the mercy of God. That's why Scripture tells us every morning we wake up to new mercies. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you thanking you so much for sending Jesus to be our propitiation, to be the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you, Father, for freeing us from the law of sin and death and placing us in the freedom of Christ. If there are those who are out there right now are being held back by their own works righteousness, would you please deliver them and free them? Would you please show your kindness to them? Would you show them the magnitude of your grace and love so that they know just how forgiven they are? We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.